0: Please open in your Bibles to Luke chapter nine. I once had a conversation with an airline pilot that has always stuck with me. He told me that if a plane loses cabin pressure, rapid loss of cabin pressure at, I think he said 30,000 feet, that you have six seconds of consciousness to get the mask on. That's why they tell you, if the masks fall from the thing, you put it on yourself first before you help the child sitting next to you, right? If you're passed out, you can't save them, right? It's a pretty basic principle. The dead don't help the dead. <laughs> the unconscious don't help the unconscious. Now, I tried to verify this a few weeks ago, and it's a, bit, it's a bit jumbled. There's lots of variables about what happens with that rapid loss of cabin pressure and at what elevation. But it's not good news. And you should put the mask on yourself before you help your neighbor. There's a basic principle here that I think Jesus would have us see applies to the kingdom of God as well we're going to see this morning in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus begins to show us the seed of the church as he sends his apostles out to to show forth the kingdom to heal and to cure and to uh, preach the preach the kingdom of God but we also see that the apostles themselves have a long way to go and that In this text, we're gonna see the apostles themselves need saving. In order for us to benefit from the apostolic witness, they had to put the mask on themselves first. They had to first come to faith in Christ. This morning, we're looking at this passage from Luke chapter nine, and we're looking at at the first 50 verses. You may wonder, why are we stopping at verse 50? Why are we stopping the series at verse 50? Well, that's because we recognize, most scholars recognize, that verse 50 and 51 represents a turning point in the gospel. In verse 51, Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem. He sets his face to Jerusalem to die. So, in these first three cha- or nine chapters, we've covered the, the bulk of Jesus' ministry, in a sense, uh, in terms of time, as he's wandered around Galilee preaching and teaching to, the, to his disciples. And now comes the fateful trip in which he will be crucified. And so this morning, we're kind of looking at the first end of this section. And Lord willing, next year, we'll come and pick up at Luke 9.51 and make our way with Jesus to Jerusalem. But we're stopping here so that we can move on to Daniel, so that we can hear more of God's word throughout the year. As we go through this passage this morning, and we see what Jesus is doing in planting the church, we're going to use... Uh, Five statements to organize our time. The first statement is that Jesus is rebuilding the people of God. Jesus is rebuilding the people of God. These statements are all kind of relate and build on each other. But statement number two is that the people of God are built on Jesus, the Christ. The people of God are built on the Christ. Number three, we'll see that, the peop- that, that Christ has to suffer. The Christ has to suffer. And finally, we're going to look at two more application uh, statements. Number one, that all people must be saved by the suffering of Christ. The only way to be saved is by the suffering of Christ. And finally, that all disciples must follow Christ's pattern of suffering than glory. So let's launch out and to look at first, Jesus is rebuilding the people of God. And we're going to look at this in verses 1 through 17, and then we're going to skip down and read the transfiguration passage, or the, the, the account of Jesus being glorified, beginning in verse 28. And hopefully as we go, you'll see why we're doing that. So first, let's read verses 1 through 17, Luke chapter 9. This begins on page 866 of the Bibles provided. And he called the twelve together, and gave them power and authority over all demons And to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return the apostles told him all they had done, and when he took them and withdrew apart to a town called the Sida, when the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now let's skip down to verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from, Peter, parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they, had entered, the cl- as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. What I want you to see here from this interesting collection of texts is that Jesus is rebuilding the people of God. If you've been following along with Luke, it should not be a surprise that the people of God need rebuilding. Remember how Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith and he marveled that such faith was not found even in Israel. We've seen also growing opposition to Jesus from those who we would think should have been most receptive, from the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes. They rejected God's purpose for them in rejecting John the Baptist and Jesus. And in this chapter, later on, we'll see Jesus lament that he has come to a twisted and faithless generation. The picture that's painted is that God's people were in spiritual darkness, but God does not leave them that way. He begins rebuilding the people of God by empowering the twelve apostles to carry out his ministry. So in this passage, instead of Jesus healing and casting out demons and preaching, he calls and empowers the twelve apostles to do that ministry. It may not seem like it, but this is a major step in the Gospel of Luke. It shows us that Jesus did not simply come to do some amazing things and then leave. He came to leave a, a permanent witness of his saving work. He came to bring new life to the people of God. He came to establish his church. We don't see that in full yet, but we see the first, first signs of it as Jesus authorizes and empowers These 12 apostles to be his representatives, ambassadors for his kingdom. So I want to just do a quick flyover of these verses that we just read and make the case for why we see this as the new people of God, the people of God being rebuilt. The first sign of this rebuilding work is the repetition of the number 12 throughout this passage. So a lot of times as we're reading the first nine chapters of Luke, we, we see references to disciples. But then in chapter 6, we see the twelve called, and they're called apostles. Well, here in this passage, we see the twelve repeated several times. First, in verse 1, Jesus uh, he, he called the twelve together, and he gave them this power. Then, in the middle of, uh, in, in verse 12, he, he, we see the twelve again come. And they tell Jesus to send the crowds away, but they're called the twelve. Sandwiched between these two twelves, uh, these are called the apostles, which reminds us again of their calling in, in, in chapter 6. And then after the feeding of the 5,000, 12 baskets of broken pieces are collected, one for each of these apostles who seem to doubt what to do in this case. So these 12 apostles are the ones that Jesus empowers to heal. He authorizes them to preach the gospel. And he uses them, despite their doubts, to feed the people in the wilderness. Now, 12 is an important number for God's people because there are 12 tribes of Israel. But now there are no longer these 12 tribes. There are these 12 apostles and, and in Israel is not defined by relationship to Abraham. Israel is defined by those who have come and heard the truth of Christ proclaimed by his apostles. Or in the case of the miracle, fed by his apostles. So the people of God are built as they hear the apostles' message about Jesus. This message of repent and believe. That's one evidence that that Jesus is rebuilding the people of God. Line of evidence number two. Jesus feeds the 5,000. And verse 12 tells us that he does this feeding in a desolate place. Desolate place translates the Greek word that is wilderness. So we can put the pieces together and say Jesus feeds God's people in the wilderness. And he feeds them in a miraculous way after looking up to heaven and blessing the loaves and fishes the disciples brought him. So once we saw God feed his people in the wilderness through his servant Moses, but now God feeds his people again in the wilderness through Jesus. He feeds them with apparently heavenly food. But notice that when the apostles bring the problem to Jesus, what does Jesus say to them? You give them something to eat. He wants them to realize they have a role to play in his kingdom he wants them to love and serve the people the way he does and so when it comes time to distribute the food Jesus doesn't give it directly to each individual man he gives it to the 12 and they hand it out and the people eat and are satisfied Jesus is rebuilding the people of God so we could put the people of God like this. The people of God are those who are fed by Christ through the ministry of his apostles. All right, here's the third chord in my three-corded strand of pieces of evidence for Jesus rebuilding the people of God. And that's what we see happen on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. We'll come back to some of, the, of these details, but here's what I want you to draw, see. The disciples witness the glorified Jesus. They see Jesus in his glory. We're told his physical appearance changes and his his clothes even change and that they're shining bright. And after Peter's confused statement about the three tenths, Luke says that a cloud overshadowed them, and that as this cloud came, they were afraid. And what I want you to see is that when we see these ideas of, of the cloud, of glory, of a mountain. And Moses, our biblical spidey senses should be tingling. We're meant to think, I think, of two different places in the book of Exodus. One is Moses on Mount Sinai when he's receiving the law. And he asks God to let him see God. This is Exodus chapter 33. And God tells him, you can't see me in a full way, but I can hide you in this cleft of the rock and I will pass by you. That's, an, that's one place where we have these ideas of God's glory and this cloud and the mountain all wrapped up together. The other place is Exodus chapter 40, when the tabernacle has finally been completed. God's glory cloud descends and fills the tabernacle, and we're told that Moses could not enter it because God's glory filled it. This, this cloud of glory overwhelmed and overcame the tabernacle. And these two things are not just kind of random biblical stories I'm plucking out. These are places where God is creating Israel as a nation. How does does God create Israel? He gives them his law, and he dwells among them. He walks among them with this tabernacle, this tent of meeting. So in Exodus 33, God met with Moses, who was then the mediator between God and man. And in Exodus 40, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, God lives among his people as he dwells in the tabernacle. But now, God is meeting with Jesus. And Jesus needs no shielding from God's glory, right? We see God dwelling among his people. And he's not doing it through a tent. But he's doing it through Jesus himself, his son who he says is his chosen one. Now all that's amazing on its own, but what's even more amazing is that Peter, James, and John are there. They clearly don't have a clue of what's happening, but Jesus thinks it's important for these three fishermen from Galilee to be allowed to be there in the presence of God's glory, to behold his own glory, and to hear God's word about him. And what does God tell them to do? He doesn't just tell them who Jesus is, but he says, listen to his words. Listen to him. So upon these confused disciples, Christ will build his church. We see this as like God's glory cloud founding a new people of God as revealed in Jesus as is testified to by (coughs) Christ's apostles. Now, it's clear this is just a a foretaste of what's going to happen fully after Jesus is raised and exalted as he, he gives his spirit to the apostles at Pentecost. So there's much more to this story of Jesus rebuilding his people than this, but it starts here. And I think this should greatly encourage us because we are the beneficiaries of what Jesus is doing here. I don't know if, if you'd ever like to have been an ancient Israelite standing in the wilderness and, it's, and to be able to see with your own eyes the glory cloud fill the tabernacle and to see Moses transformed. Is that, isn't there a part of us that, that desires that tangible, visible experience? And, and God has not chosen fit to give it to us. But he has given us the truth. He has revealed himself to us truly and profoundly. And so our glory cloud moment is not something we can see with our eyes, but it's something that we hear in the testimony of the apostles. They were his witnesses. And so even as we are here gathered around listening to this gospel of Luke, part of the apostolic testimony, we are allowed to see the glory of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of Christ as we read the scriptures, as we have this apostolic testimony about who he is and what he came to do. We're being fed by Jesus through the ministry of his apostles. And we can be a part of this people that Jesus is founding by believing the good news about him. This is better than being there on the plains or wherever they were when when the cloud was descending. This is better news because we have a better salvation in Christ. And so to be a Christian is to be a recipient of this powerful ministry that Jesus founded here. And what a kindness it was of him to allow Peter, James, and John to see this even even though they didn't understand it. How powerful must this have been to them to, to recollect on when they were persecuted and had their doubts? We saw Jesus transformed. We heard the voice declare that he has the words of life. We are the beneficiaries sitting here of their testimony. So the Christ who was glorified on the mountain is now seated in glory at the right hand of God and he's preserved this gospel word For us to hear and believe and be saved. We see that we can be part of God's people by trusting in Christ. And that this people is built on Christ. And that's our second point this morning. The people of God are built on Christ. I want us to think about how exciting all of this must have been for the apostles, right? They get this power. They get to cast out demons and heal They're authorized to preach the gospel. And then a few of them are taken up on the mountain. I mean, I don't know what they thought was going to happen when they started following in Jesus, but I don't think any of them anticipated. Peter, James, and John did not anticipate. They were going to be having an experience that only Moses before them has even had. To be up on the mountain, seeing Jesus glorified. To be brought in a way into the very throne room of God. We can understand why their minds were filled with visions of glory and who is the greatest, right? Their names are going to be right up there in the pantheon with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Samuel. They have a a powerful sense that things were changing in Israel. God was on the move and they were at the forefront of this movement. But we see here in our text that the disciples were not the only ones noticing that something special was going on with Jesus, Sandwiched between Jesus sending out the twelve and their return, we have this interesting tidbit about Herod. Herod, who had beheaded John the Baptist, is interested in Jesus, perplexed by him, and he wants to see him. And when he asks about him, notice that there's this rumor mill going around. There's gossip about Jesus. And some say that he's John the Baptist raised from the dead, this is in verses 7 through 9. Some that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see Jesus. Now notice what the options people are throwing out are, right? There, John the Baptist raised from the dead. They are Elijah who has appeared. Now he didn't have to raise from the dead because he never died, right? So Elijah is this old testament prophet that gets taken up by these fiery chariots in the presence of his protege, Elisha. And it was promised that Elijah would return right before the great and awesome day of the Lord came. That's Malachi 4, 5. So that's option B. He's Elijah. Option C is that one of the prophets of old has risen from the dead. So maybe Moses is back, and he's doing these amazing things. These are pretty wild theories, right? But notice that none of the gossip is saying... Well, he's just another traveling teacher and wonder worker, right? None of them are just saying he's just a charismatic rabbi that's got a following. The expectation is clearly that Jesus is someone special, someone supernatural, someone who's a, a sign pointing to God's powerful work. We see that all this gossip about Jesus is in some ways both on the right track and totally wrong, It's right that there's something special about Jesus, but if that's all they see about him, then they've missed the point, right? Herod Herod was curious, we see here. He wants to see Jesus, but there's no evidence that Herod ever became a a follower of Jesus. This is helpful to see. You you might meet people who have a high regard for Jesus, who regard him as an impressive character, a world-changing figure even. But that doesn't save anyone. There's a difference between being impressed by Jesus and trusting that he is God's son who came to pay for your sins. So it's good to ask, do I have that kind of saving knowledge of Jesus? Now, by God's grace, he does open blind eyes so that we can see Jesus truly. And we see that happening here in chapter 9. because We stopped reading at verse 17, but I want to pick it back up at verse 18. And read about something that echoes what happened with Herod. Now it happened as he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. This is a hugely significant step, and one that it's easy for us to miss. We're just used to thinking of Jesus Christ as if Christ is just his last name, right? But they were confessing something monumental about Jesus, that he wasn't just an interesting supernatural figure, but something else is true. He is the Christ of God. They've seen Jesus heal. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him calm storms. They've seen him raise the dead. And they've even shared in his power. They helped him to feed the 5,000. And now God has opened their eyes to Jesus' true identity. He's Christ. So this confession means that they know he's not a resurrected Moses. He's not Elijah. They would probably be thinking in the terms of Psalm 2. The Lord's anointed That's who Jesus is. He's the Lord's anointed against whom the nations rage. And Psalm 2 ends by saying, kiss the sun. That's the Son of God, not the sun, the fiery thing in the sky. Kiss the sun or perish. It it warns that all who would be saved must take refuge in the sun. That's who they would have understood Jesus to be by confessing him as the Christ. Or they would have thought of Psalm 110 This is the psalm in which David said, the Lord says to my Lord, where David seems to recognize this king over him. And this is the one to whom God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's the psalm where Jesus Jesus is prophesied as the priest forever, according to Melchizedek's order. He's prophesied as the judge of all nations. This is who the Christ was expected to be. The long-awaited king in David's line, who would rescue Israel from her enemies and punish them. He would judge the nations. At this point, we know that Peter and the apostles don't understand all that it means to say that Jesus is the Christ, but they would have had all of these kinds of expectations. They would expect, then, a glorious Christ. They would expect a Christ who rules and reigns. They would expect Jesus, the Christ, to be someone who's not just another amazing figure, but this unique and powerful representative, God's own anointed. And, and that's what the vision confirms on the mountain, right? That he is the Christ. That the, the, the church, the people of God, are built on the Christ. They, it must be built on the Christ, or in some ways it doesn't matter at all. So Jesus is not another man who will die like Moses, but he is God's son, the chosen one. He is this one in David's line who will rule and reign on God's behalf. It's imperative that we see this. The church must be built on Christ. And again, this is good news for us. Our faith is not built on a mediator who's merely human and sinful like us. We don't have a high priest who's got his own sins to atone for. When we confess that Jesus is the Christ, we are confessing his glory. That he is this special one sent by God. That he is God himself who has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Which is why it's so glorious that we got to confess that nothing else could pay for our sins except for the death of the Son of God. All of that is wrapped up in confessing that Jesus is the Christ. And so it is good news for us that the church is built on Christ. But this is where we have to pay very close attention to who the Christ is and who the Christ says he must be. Because that's what we've already said. It would be easy to imagine Christ only in his glory. That seems to be the expectation of Israelites I think it's fair to say that was the expectation of the disciples. We are going to see Christ in his glory. We're on the inside track for the glorious Christ. And the only question is, which one of us is going to be closest to the top of the pyramid? You know? Whose name is going to have second billing after the Christ? Because he's come, he's going to be victorious, and we're like his 12 generals who are going to help him mop up. They, they believe it's time for Jesus Christ to, to lift up his mighty scepter and rule in the midst of his enemies. So that's why it's so important that we follow Jesus where he leads us. Because after Peter confesses that he is the Christ of God, or God's Christ, we follow this with verses 21, verse 21 and following. As soon as the confession is out of Peter's mouth, Jesus says, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. Jesus Jesus here presents himself as the Christ who will suffer. His dad so helpfully prayed. This was not something that any of them could have imagined, but he, we see the Christ must suffer. Notice that it says that. The Son of Man must suffer many things. So somehow it's going to be true that Jesus is indeed the Christ. He is this glorious Son of David. He is the one to rule over the nations and judge them. And yet, he's going to be rejected by his own people. He's going to be, as he says later, handed over or delivered over to the hands of men. He is going to be the Christ who suffers. This is another crucial thing that the transfiguration story confirms to the disciples. If they had eyes and ears to see and hear it. Notice that when Jesus appears with Moses and Elijah. What do they talk about? Did you you notice that when we were reading the transfiguration account? It says, And two men... We're talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So when the disciples get this transportation into into glory, they see Jesus glorified. They see Moses and Elijah. First, they know, well, Jesus isn't Moses and Elijah because they're there. But they also know Moses and Elijah are speaking of his departure. Right? They, they're in on the plan. They approve of the plan. And if Moses and Elijah approve of it, it must be okay. It must be God's will. This is like double extra confirmation. If it wasn't enough to have Jesus himself say it, now we have the law and prophets testifying that Jesus is supposed to go to Jerusalem and die. That's not an accident. That's not a, that's not a record scratch moment. That is what is supposed to happen. The Christ must suffer and die. And why must he suffer and die? It's because of our sin. There's no salvation without atonement for sin. Jesus must suffer. And so when we talk about the church, uh, the people of God being rebuilt and being built on Christ, and that the Christ must suffer, we're saying the church can only exist. If Jesus pays the price our sins deserve, the Christ must suffer. He is the glorious one, and his glory is seen as he faithfully suffers <coughs> and pays the price our sin deserves. It would be easy to overlook how much of Jesus's compassion is woven throughout this chapter. Right? What does Jesus do when the crowds follow him to Bethsaida, and he's trying to get away from them? It seems. He welcomes them. And whose idea is it to feed the crowds? It's Jesus' idea. And doesn't Jesus make sure that they are fully satisfied when they eat? He is our compassionate Savior. He willingly came to suffer death. The one who made men's hands came to be handed over to their hands and be killed by them. Jesus is full of love here. So as we think about ourselves, where do we stand? Again, we are beneficiaries of this great gospel message, this message of the glorious Christ who dies for sin and then is raised from the dead and exalted over all things. This is very good news. It is very good news that the church is built on Christ and that the Christ must suffer and that our sins are paid for. This is the news that we have the privilege to proclaim. And that brings us to our f- uh, fourth statement. All people need Christ's salvation. I'm going to pick up the chapter in verse 37 and read through the end. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out, It convulses him so that, his, so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and, and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered to the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you at all is the one who is greatest. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. In this last section of the chapter, we see that Jesus came to a faithless and twisted generation. I wonder if this is meant to follow the pattern of Moses coming down from the mountain and finding Israel worshiping the golden calf. But we're meant to see a contrast between Christ and his glory and the spiritual darkness that engulfs Israel and I think even the disciples. And this darkness brings forth a lament from Jesus. On first reading, it, it sounds like Jesus is exasperated with his people and perhaps with his disciples, but it may help to think of Jesus here in his role as the representative of Israel. So he's more like the psalmist praying, how long? How long until his work is finished and all things are made right? In this lament, we're meant to hear both Jesus's hatred of sin and unbelief and to hear a hope for the completion of his work. So it's a sign of the healing that he will bring, and he heals the boy, the demon-possessed boy, to demonstrate that he is still the one who heals. After the healing, we're told about the crowd's reaction, they're astonished. They're, they get a glimpse of the glory, the majesty of God, perhaps almost like a, a miniature transfiguration moment to follow the one that the disciples have seen. And so, Jesus makes sure to follow it among his disciples. Don't get wrapped up in all this glorying they're doing. Remember, I must be handed over to the hands of men. I must be delivered. This phrase, delivered into the hands of men, it's a strange way of describing his suffering. But it emphasizes the way that Jesus will submit to being arrested and being tried by the leaders of Israel and Rome. He wants his disciples to know that subjecting himself to the evil treatment of men, again, is part of God's plan. They're going to see him actually arrested, taken into custody. Perhaps they'll be able to see the beating he receives at the hands of the soldiers. Again, it's one of the great paradoxes of the gospel. Evil men, we know, rule only by the pleasure of the Lord. And yet the Lord submits to their evil rule over him. He willingly submits to this treatment. Such is Christ's humility and love. But after this second death prediction, we see how far the disciples still have to go in their understanding. They don't understand his prediction. It says it was concealed from them. So in some ways, they're like the the crowds you read about in the parable of the sower. We don't know exactly why it's concealed, but... I wonder if perhaps that God did not want them to fully grasp what was about to happen because they might try to stop it. You know, we think, think about how uh, Martin Luther was kidnapped to keep him out of harm's way. We, couldn't you imagine his disciples saying, well, we're not going to let you go to Jerusalem, right? We're going to take you somewhere else. But this also might just be a sign of their own inability to understand that Christ's sacrifice is the only way for sins to be paid for. And we see in the last two paragraphs of the passage, their confusion just continues, right? They're arguing about their own greatness. They're trying to kind of protect their their lane, right? They want to keep others out of it. They rebuke this guy who's casting out demons in Jesus' name. It's clear that the disciples have not escaped the influence of the twisted and faithless generation. They're obsessed with their own power and greatness, This gets us back to where we started. Before the disciples can be ministers of the gospel, they have to be saved by the gospel. Before they can feed others, they need to be fed by the Lord themselves. We see here that Christ's kingdom is a gospel kingdom. It's not founded on Jesus' blood relatives. It's founded on these men who have been saved by his work. And so for the apostles to really become the authorized kingdom ambassadors, they have to be saved by him and given his spirit as they are at Pentecost. They had to come and see their own sin, their own weakness, and to see that only Christ's death could bring them forgiveness. Only faith in his death and resurrection can sinners find life. Only by faith can they find life. It's only when they've repented of their lust for power that they could finally be forgiven and empowered by the risen Christ. The apostles needed Christ's salvation. What's wonderful is that when we read the New Testament, we clear, clearly they, they received it and they believe in it and they're happy to minister to it. And so that we know that what the apostles needed, we all need as well. We all need Christ's salvation. We all need the salvation that Christ brings through his suffering. And so we see that apart from his suffering, we would be hopeless, apart from his dying for sin. We would have no life. Another way to put this is that the generation who was alive when Christ was alive was not the only twisted and faithless generation, right? Each succeeding generation has been twisted and faithless. So when Paul was writing some years later to the Philippians, he called them to shine as lights among a twisted and perverse generation. Sin twists us. It twists us in on ourselves, such that we're enslaved to our own desires. And none of us are born with faith in Christ. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the glorious Son of God. He died for us. And we can take the fact that Jesus came to a twisted and perverse generation in in two ways that are both true. So we we can join him in lamenting the darkness and seeing how grievous sin is, but we can also see that he came to this generation, right? He came to a faithless people. He came knowing what he was getting into, knowing what a mess his people were in, and yet he still came. He came to this twisted generation so he could untwist them. He came to the faithless to bring them to faith in his name and to grant them salvation. He was indeed God's chosen one, Chosen to die and rise again for our salvation. So we come to the point where we do see our faithlessness, how inward we were were twisted, how we love our own power and glory and comfort, and yet know that Jesus came to save people like us. All our sins can be washed away if we trust in his work. And again, God in his kindness has preserved this gospel message for us. Where? Where? in the apostolic record, the New Testament. By God's grace, the apostles came to know and were saved. They put the mask on themselves before they helped us. And by God's grace, we can be saved by Christ as well. All people need to be saved by him. Will you come to him? Trust in his death to pay for your sins. Luke 9 calls us, To trust in Christ's atoning work. And it also describes then the life that should result from trusting in that work. It describes the life that the saved should live. So look at verses 23 and 27. This is right after he's predicted his death. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That last prophecy seems to both refer to those three that will see the glory of God on the mountain, but also to all the apostles who who endured and who saw Christ exalted and who saw the Spirit come at Pentecost. But Jesus, Jesus teaches here that the disciples' life should follow Christ's own pattern, the pattern of suffering and then glory. Jesus commands us here to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, to follow Jesus and to lose our lives for Christ's sake he also accompanies these commands with warnings he warns about the possibility of forfeiting your soul for the sake of gaining this life he warns about the danger of being ashamed of Christ in his words which words might we be ashamed of well, just before these, these commands, he's predicted his own suffering to his disciples. If we're ashamed of the cross and the way of the cross, then we have no place among God's people. We need to remember that Jesus' sacrifice was motivated by his love, his love for God and his love for lost people. So he's, again, the one who welcomed the crowds, who provided food for them, the one whose desires to heal and restore his people. And so we see this call to sacrifice is not a call for asceticism for its own sake. Right? Jesus says it's for Christ's sake, it's for my sake. So what are some of the ways that we should deny ourselves and lose our lives for Christ's sake? We can recognize that sharing the gospel always involves some kind of sacrifice, we could choose to go about our days only caring about ourselves and not the souls of others, right? But we're called to sacrifice at the very least our time and our kind of emotional attention to care for the eternal fate of other people. We're called to risk awkward conversations and perhaps the loss of reputation or loss of respect by, by telling them that we really believe that, that people are sinners in need of a Savior. and That Jesus really did die and raise again from the dead for our salvation. That's one way we're called to lay down our lives for Christ's sake. In our relationships in general, we're called to deny ourselves for the good of others. So we recognize the way that parents have to sacrifice because they love their children. We see that one day that children will likely have to lay down their lives to care for their aging parents. We see husbands and wives are called to bear each other's burdens, and we know that we're called to lay down our lives for each other within the church. And perhaps the hardest place to sacrifice yourself, to lay down your life, is when you are unfairly attacked or you're sinned against in some way. But we see that our Savior was also sinned against. He was delivered into the hands of these men who lied about him and beat him and nailed him to a cross and then continued on mocking him. He endured that abuse and mockery. It says he despised the shame, looking to the reward, looking to the hope that awaited him, looking to the glory that was coming. He did not return evil for evil. He didn't defend himself. He didn't respond with a zinger of his own. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And he calls us to follow him in the same pattern. Is it possible for us to love like that? We've already seen he's called us to do that. He called us to love our enemies and to pray for those who curse us. The only way we can love like Christ's love is when we know his love ourselves. When we know that Christ loves us and that God accepts us because of Christ's righteousness. And we know that one day God will vindicate us. When we have that kind of confidence and know we are loved by God through Christ, we can endure. We can endure hatred from others. We can endure being thought that we're ridiculous because we believe the gospel. We can endure the insolence of a rebellious child. We can even endure a spouse who turns their back on us. We can endure knowing that God is with us through our Savior, Jesus We can endure because we would rather commend the gospel and God's love than we would see our own reputation defended. When we have that kind of love for God and faith, we can endure hatred, mockery, and persecution. It's through this kind of humble following of Jesus that we shine as lights in this crooked and perverse generation. It's tempting to think that Perhaps we can just return the world's mockery back on them and thereby demonstrating how foolish they are and how true Christianity is. But that's not the nature of Christ's kingdom. He doesn't call us to power and glory first, but to sacrifice and self-denial. To deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. As we follow Christ like this, We display his glory, that he laid down his life to save sinners. We reflect the truth of the gospel. And we can do all this knowing that glory is coming. Jesus is not dead. He did suffer and die, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He is exalted. He's at God's right hand now, sitting on his throne. And he'll come back for his people. And so we persevere knowing that we belong to the Christ, the chosen one, the Son of God. And so we go on in that confidence. We go on feeding on Christ by attending carefully to his word, the word preserved for us in the scriptures by his apostles and the apostolic band. We listen to our glorious Savior, trusting that we will one day be glorified with him when we look upon him coming in the clouds. Let's pray. Father, we have such a great salvation that you have provided for us. And it's difficult to do it justice but we thank you for revealing it to us in Christ. Thank you for this window into glory that you've given us as Jesus was glorified with Moses and Elijah and they spoke of his departure. What glory is there in the love of Christ for sinners. We confess that we only can live by faith in Christ and we thank you for the forgiveness and salvation that we have in him.